You're listening to the Hard Men Podcast, reclaiming biblical masculinity in a world of softness. Both the culture and the modern church have done an excellent job at misrepresenting the biblical Jesus. As a culture, we have largely produced a caricature of Christ based on the anemic and soft-smiled Roman Catholic paintings where Jesus looks like he's just put on a fresh coat of blush and tweezed his eyebrows. Add the rise of feminism, the deconstructionist movement, and the progressive church, and you end up with a delicate Jesus who's knocking gently on the door of your heart. But it goes much further than this. Our modern culture despises masculinity. In fact, any form of masculinity that does not adhere to the world's standard is deemed toxic. There's a reason Ariana Grande's song, God is a Woman, was number one on the Billboard Top 100 list. The world is hellbent on distorting, perverting, and redefining any biblical comprehension of gender whatsoever. To think this won't pervert our generation's view of maleness of Jesus is just plain naive. Unfortunately, the pulpit has not helped either. For the past 30 to 50 years, the church has been infatuated with keynote Christianity, where infotainers crack jokes and sprinkle in scripture. As a result, these pulpiteers have left thousands of congregations with a Christ the people want, but not the Christ that God sent. In truth, we have made a Jesus in our own image. An excerpt from Dale Partridge's book, The Manliness of Christ. How the Masculinity of Jesus Eradicates Effeminate Christianity. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I love that excerpt from my friend Dale Partridge in his book, The Manliness of Christ. Uh, Dale sent me a copy of this book. I was very excited to see it. And then, of course, in today's show, we're going to be talking with Dale about the book, what inspired it, and what we can do. Um, to improve the quality of biblical sexuality in today's culture, especially in the church. And so if you haven't yet, I'd encourage you to check out this small book. It's small but mighty. I think it's about uh, 75 pages or so. You can pick it up at Dale's website, relearn.org. We'll have a link for that in the show notes as well. And again, definitely appreciate Dale. We got to know each other over the years and uh, Dale's doing some really great work so be sure to check that out he has a lot of great resources and some of those we'll talk about in this episode as well but again check him out at relearn.org you can also follow him on social media he's on both twitter and on instagram he has a lot of video instagram stories that are really helpful uh Dale I think I first got introduced to Dale with his teaching on head coverings he's made waves in the media as well. I remember a couple of years ago, his wife wrote something on why we should not be wearing leggings. And by we, she was talking to the women, not hopefully to the men, although you never know these days. But uh, I think they were on like Good Morning America and uh, it was quite a stir uh, as Pastor Brian Sovey has found out as well. Uh, if you talk to women about their sins, that is absolute no-no to the culture and particularly modesty. Uh, people do not like that conversation. So again, I appreciate Dale. He's a courageous guy doing some great work and uh, encourage you definitely to check that out and sit back in your chairs or your cars or wherever you're sitting 
Uh, by the way, I have to say, okay, so I played music in one of the episodes before, and uh, one of the moms on Instagram, I there was a video of her kids dancing to the music, and um, apparently the music is kind of a big deal. So we're going to play a little music for those who want to move their little tiny toddler bodies around. We love that. And uh, enjoy this show. We're going to talk with Dale Partridge. Very edifying conversation, and I hope it's a blessing to you. For those who are not yet supporting on Patreon, I do encourage you to become a Patreon member today. Uh, you can join for as little as $5 a month. That helps support a Christian work. We're doing a lot of good things. Uh, we got a couple books in the works this year. We're working on the Hardman Podcast book, a book on biblical masculinity, and uh, got a couple other works in the project as well. Teaming up with Brian Sylvain, Dan Burkholder on some stuff with Kings Hall. And a giant new project, which we're about to unveil. And when I say giant, I mean giant. Anyway, all of this you can find out more about and support through Patreon.com. You can also go to Ericon.com. Get your Virtus or Pietas t-shirt today. You can get a coffee mug as well. Check those out. Drop shipping is available. They can be to your house generally in the next couple of days. And again, thank you to everyone who is a supporter of the show. Now we'll get to the music. And we'll get the wiggles out with the little ones. Welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest, my friend Dale Partridge. Dale, thanks for joining me on uh, this episode. Brother man, I'm excited to finally have the conversation <laughs> and I've listened to a handful of your episodes. I listened, by the way, to your episode of the 10 most masculine movies of all time or something like that. Uh, oh, while nice. I was driving. I was driving to Arkansas. I had lots of time. I loved the commentary and I watched three or four of the movies that I hadn't seen including uh, Man on Fire, which was oh, fantastic, yes. by the way. Yes, Denzel. Uh, any, any films, Dale, I'm curious, any films you would add to that list? Uh, the Count of Monte Cristo um, mm, yeah. is just, in my opinion, one of the, the greatest. I mean, it's obviously one of the greatest stories, uh, but I think Jim Caviezel did a really great job. It showed, again, masculinity, and it's, uh, you know, there's obviously a bit of revenge uh, driving that story. But it yes. was a great, it was a great flick, and uh, still one of my favorites. Um, but yeah, you guys had all you, you had all the classics on there. Um, Cinderella Man, I watched that again because it's just so good. Um, and so, uh, Road to Perdition, another ones that I, that I love. Anyways, you, you had some good stuff that's going on there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's always good. I've I've found that uh, men, especially like stories, um, if they can connect with it. I think you know, even stuff like John Eldridge's book. One of the things that's that's good about the book, obviously not a lot, you know, there's a lot of things that I wouldn't say are great, but uh, one of the things that's really good about it is he really understands men and movies and how they connect with that sort of genre. So it's 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 definitely a positive. Um, one of the things I want to ask you about today is your book, The Manliness of Christ. You sent it to me. I, I've read the book. Uh, the subtitle is How the Masculinity of Jesus Eradicates Effeminate Christianity. So immediately I saw that and I said, yes, Dale, <laughs> I am pretty sure I'm already on board. Then I read it. Of course, it was great. 
Um, very winsome and nuanced for our age. Right. So I want to ask you, how, how did this book come about? What was going on in your life? What were you seeing in the church that you said, I, I got to write a book about masculinity? Yeah. So it was actually originally a paper for some um, postgraduate work that I'm doing uh, with uh, Grace Bible Theological Seminary. I'm doing, um, I'm trying to get my seminary credits to a point where I can uh, go get a doctorate. And um, so I'm doing um, some, some extra classes. Uh, and one of these classes is a Christology class with Dr. Owen Schran. And mm. um, I had a paper for this class and uh, I asked Strand, I said, Hey, can, can I just make this a little bit longer and turn this into a book? And he's sure. And so um, that was the original source of the, the, the reality of that project. However, but this is kind of the, the driver behind it. Um, feminization is, is blinding. Um, and mm. we don't realize it. Um, it's kind of like a shadow that dims everything in its path. Uh, feminism kind of just it comes into the church and obscures masculinity. It, it, it makes uh, masculinity vague. It, it's difficult to, to spot. Um, it, it shifts how we see men and it does the, the same thing to how we see Christ. Um, and, and that's what, what I was sensing. And so it's, it, instead of seeing Jesus as a masculine man, we see him as this androgynous individual who radiates feminine characteristics. And, and then what we do is we put those characteristics on a pedestal and make them the mark for all Christians, including men. So we have this, mm. we have this church now filled with effeminate men because they think that they're mimicking an effeminate Christ. And so this becomes a huge problem because the Christian faith is about following Christ. So I, I finally realized that if the blueprint to follow is wrong, then the copies are all wrong. Essentially, we're following a perverted and distorted template of Christ in this modern era because we have such an effeminate view of, of Jesus. And so that was the drive for the book to go back to the scriptures and extract the biblical view of Christ, uh, that he was a man, that he was potently masculine. Um, and we, we simply have lost that view in the shadow of feminization. So that was really the drive to, to uncover and unearth who is Christ as a man so that I can follow him faithfully as a man. Yeah, such a such a great and important topic in our day. Like you said, feminization has definitely had its effects. Um, one of the things that you did in the in the book that I find helpful that a lot of people haven't done, there's a lot of stuff on masculinity. I mentioned guys like John Eldridge, but you spend a lot of time going back to Jesus and how we actually do see these things. I think that typically we read our Bibles with a pink highlighter when it comes to Jesus. We just... <laughs> Highlight the feminist traits, you know, or the feminine traits, I should say. Yep. Uh, but one of the things you point to is Jesus going up to Jerusalem in his statement. And you make a claim that this is one of the, the manliest statements in, in the history of the world. So if you would just unpack that, why was that passage so pivotal as you were thinking about this subject? Yeah, Matthew twenty eighteen, Jesus says, behold, mm -hmm. we are going up to Jerusalem. Uh, it says later in, in, in this passage that he was up in front walking before them. Mm. Now, again, you, you can pass over that statement and go, ah, okay, Jesus is going to, to Jerusalem. But this passage is, when you unpack it, you, you recognize that Jesus is 
making a statement that he's going to Jerusalem where he knows he will be killed because he's the Messiah and has all knowledge. He knows he will be killed. He knows how he will be killed. He knows that not only that, but he will be killed for the sins of others and not for himself. He will be tortured. He will die. He will also suffer the forsaking of God, which of the theological mystery that is, but he, he will suffer that element as well. Uh, he will be buried. He, he knows these things. He, he, and he still says, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. Uh, and, he, and he's not in the back and he's not complaining and he's not lagging. Uh, he's actually, according to scripture, out in front of them. And so mm. I, I imagine that as the disciples are watching this, knowing that maybe not knowing that the extent of what's going on, but knowing definitely that this is going to be trouble. Uh, this is going to result possibly in his death and their death. You know, we, we obviously know that, that Jesus was a provocative figure in uh, Jerusalem and there was concern and fear uh, in the disciples for returning there. Um, and so for them to see Jesus out in front, um, directing where they're going without fear, without concern, calmly, coolly, peacefully, ha had to be a thing to see because he's going on to take on the wrath of God. He's not just going to die like the guys in Normandy that are going to be brave enough to go and take a bullet for the country. That, that's, that's rough and that's tough men as well, but this is a totally another level. He's going on to take the wrath of God in a way that no man has ever done. Mm. And he's, he's in front. If you were told that you had to go take on the wrath of all man's sin from God, are you out front? <laughs> Right. Um, yeah. No kidding. So, so this is this is a very pivotal, bold, masculine moment, and and I would argue that the reason that Christ could do that, um, God has put him as a man in a position that he is uniquely masculine and male to fulfill that duty. Yes. So he is potently masculine and capable to fulfill the messianic reality and prophecies as a man. And so there were certain biological realities that needed to be true for those things to be fulfilled the way that they were fulfilled. And so there's something like he couldn't and he didn't, according to God's wisdom, do this as a woman. Right. And so, so this is, there's, there's something that we can correlate between the boldness and bravery and courage and masculinity and intensity of Christ with the fact that he's a biological male and not a female. The, the God as a Trinitarian, right, has presented Jesus's fleshly incarnation in a way that is prepared him and equipped him to fulfill his ministry as a man. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons, Dale, it's so helpful is because, you know, anytime I've spoken on masculinity, uh, people will hear what they want to hear and they say, oh, so you're talking about, you know, gym bros and machismo and, you know, and then they automatically go to all the categories that are, you know, actually toxic or, you know, they're, they're the bad sides of masculinity if it's not uh, tethered to God's word and sanctified and all those, all those things. But I think it is really helpful having Jesus as the central picture because we can look at it and we can see that it's measured. Uh, one of the points you make in the book is that yeah, Christ is gentle at moments, but he's also fierce. And so one of the things we need to hold together with masculinity is that 
It's not this simplistic picture that we can present to men. So I, I want to ask you, as you think about, you know, Christ as this example, how does that say shape? I know you talk about it in the book, but how does it shape how you, you father your boys? Like, how am I going to do that differently as a dad? If, if I'm dealing with sons and I'm saying, you need to be like Christ. How have you found ways to implement that? Yeah. What a lot of people in the church struggle with is a one dimensional Christ. And that's mm-hmm. what we've seen for the last century or so as a one dimensional Christ. Uh, you know, the, the Roman Catholic painting of Jesus with blush on his cheeks and his eyebrows tweezed and this gentle, yes. l- gentle and lowly lamb. Uh, again, you know, Dane Ortland's book, gentle and lowly. Uh, you could read that book and you can go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's right. You know, Dane is not a, a novice theologian. He's not an, he's not a fool in the sense that he understands scripture. He's theologically trained. He presents a, a faithful account of one side of Jesus. And how many books did it sell? Thousands because everybody is attracted mm. in this feminine, effeminate church to the gentle and lowly side of Christianity uh, or this gentle and lowly side of Christ. But Christ is not only gentle and lowly. He is also intense and bold and fierce and rough and tough and at a level that is greater than anybody else that has ever lived. And so even on the back of the book, I write, Jesus was the most masculine man to walk the earth. In fact, if you hate masculinity, you will hate the biblical Jesus. <laughs> right? It. It's, it's, he is the most masculine man on earth. So, so what we as men need to see is we, we need to see that there is an imbalance in the definition uh, of Christ in the world today. And so we need to be willing to see a multidimensional picture of of Christ. Just like there's a book by D.A. Carson. Um, it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And it gives love in a multidimensional view, including God's wrath. And mm. it, it's a very helpful uh, theological treatment on multidimensional theology in the sense of you don't want to look at one side because we have this confirmation bias that we often want to look at the version of Christ that makes us feel the best or the version of Christ that we need right that moment. Um, but the truth is, is that Christ is, is both gentle and lowly, but also bold and fierce and intense. And, um, and so as a husband, as a father, I want to have a robust and uh, well-rounded definition and view of Christ. And so this book is a reactive book in the sense that it is reacting to a one-sided uh, view of Christ. And I wanted to offer the other side of Christ. It's not balanced at all. My, my book is not right. balanced. It, it is the other side of gentle and lowly. I think if you, if you throw them both together, uh, you can get a, uh, a well-rounded view of Christ. Um, and again, I have my own issues with, with gentle and lowly as a book, but it, again, I, I'm not going to say that it's a heretical book. Um, it, it, there was some absolute gems in there. And so we need to understand both sides of, of um, Christ's character and Christ's masculinity. And Christ's softness is not feminine. It's masculine. It's just not the side of masculinity that we typically think of as men. And so 
you can be very masculine while being gentle. You can be very masculine while being lowly. You can be very masculine while being sensitive, but you do so in a way that is absolutely different than a woman would do it. And that's essential to understand. So for me and my boys, I am constantly trying to go back and forth when I see the moments that arise to instruct them in the way of Christ on how to treat your sister and how to treat um, your mother and how to treat a friend who's hurt to Mm. uh, how to stand for truth and how to not be afraid and how to not complain when things are tough. And, and we, we kind of oscillate between those two through our home, offering them a well-rounded view of Christ. And that, that is the work that we need to do. And again, I, I think that a lot of husbands and fathers don't even realize how feminine our definition of Christ is. Um, it's it's kind of like the fish doesn't know it's wet. You yeah. know, even, even the men's groups at church are modeled after women's groups just made for men. And so yeah. we, we just have, we don't even realize that h- how f- effeminate we are. We almost have to like look back in history to be reminded of what's normal for men and what's normal for how we view Christ and, and how we, we catechize and train up our children to understand masculinity and femininity. We're so confused and perverted and distorted in this generation that it's difficult to discern and distinguish biblical characteristics that are historical and doctrinal and clear to other generations, but we've been so muddied and it's so much of it's on us. Um, and so that is, that is the, the goal. It's to give our boys a well-rounded, multidimensional Jesus that is accurate to the scriptures. Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal point. Uh, one of the questions I've had is, is I've looked at the culture and the church and I've said, oh, obviously we have feminization, um, but, but I've also kind of looked at, say, like the megachurch pastor, a lot of the gospel coalition type guys. A lot of them are not bad people. They're, they're good men who went to seminary and are trained, love the Lord. Um, but I think for them, they, they may hear some of this and they think, okay, well, um, you know, I have real problems uh, really emphasizing this masculine Christ. And they look out at their congregations, uh, as you point out in the book, that are mostly female. So if you're talking to that guy, what would you tell him? Why do we need to, especially uh, as we look at a, a, a church that's mostly women, why do we need to be preaching uh, about masculinity in some context and having these right biblical masculine categories? Well, we know that if you win the men, you win the women. If you win the women, you win the children, right? It, it, we, we know this, not only on a statistical analysis level, which has been true in church polls and surveys, but we also know that as a spiritual leader of the home, we know that men uh, don't submit to their wives, whether they think they are or not. Uh, the reality is, is that men will rule and reign. Uh, how they do that is essential and how they do that is key uh, to understand so that we do so in the way that Christ would rule and reign. Um, but when someone says that we need to focus on maybe the women or the more feminine characteristics of, of Christ, we miss out on attracting men who are building up biblical uh, gender roles for their families, because the 
expression of the church is ultimately an expression of the family. Now, let me give you an example of that. When we go to church, the gender roles of men being pastors and being the shepherds and women keeping silent in the churches and not uh, teaching, uh, these are accentuated in the church what is true of the home. And so it is essentially the church is a place to model what is already true at home. And so mm. we, we want the church uh, to be raising up godly men who will disciple and shepherd their wives, who will disciple and shepherd their children uh, in tandem with them. And so, um, you know, a lot of times, for example, you know, women who struggle with uh, masculine, a masculine Christ being preached from the pulpit. One, I've never seen women struggle with it who are loved, cherished, and heard. Okay, so so if you if you're a husband and you love and cherish and listen to your wife, those women, in my experience as a pastor, don't have a problem with being silent on Sunday. It's the ones who aren't cherished, loved, and heard that really struggle with it. And so um, we need to uh, obviously, as men, love, cherish, and, and listen to our wives in a way that that honors Christ. And you know, my experience when a woman wants to teach or or, or talk, or uh, I often say, instead of being so focused on the reality of, of, of you being silent in this time, why don't we focus on being excited that that 21-year-old man is praying for the church right now? Because mm. we have a, a, a male passivity problem that is historic, but absolutely magnified in this generation. And um, so we should never be sitting there as a, as a woman being frustrated that I can't speak when in reality you have these other men that are stepping up and leading their families and, and, and singing hymns in front of the church and praying for the congregation and doing the benediction and preaching the word. And so again, there's a, an interplay between the church and the home and we need to be winning men because it, it's a, it's a uh, waterfall uh, reality. Now, if you look at churches that that have strong alpha male, I would say biblically masculine, Christ exalting, Christ following pastors and elders, those churches attract men. Uh, they attract men, and they they produce men who are God glorifying husbands and fathers, who produce God glorifying wives and mothers, who produce God glorifying children. And so we, we need to see that. Now, if you, if you just talk about the feminine, feminine characteristics of Christ from the pulpit, you're going to lose the men. You're going to essentially distort and disrupt the, the order of the home that God has put in, into design uh, in the scriptures. And it, 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 it has turned into the mess that we have today. And so, yes, we, we need strong men. Now, it doesn't mean that you don't get in the pulpit every now and then and and talk about the gentle and lowly Christ. Uh, again, it's the multidimensional Christ. And the problem is, is it's just the last century and especially the last three or four decades, we've only heard one side. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. One of the things too, uh, Dale, I know you do a lot with Reformation Seminary um, and training of men. So you, you kind of have a unique view on this too, where it's not just a theological thing for you, um, but you're actually working with men and, and women, uh, but working with men on this on a, uh, on a daily basis. 
So I'm just curious how in, in what you guys teach and, and how you train, how are you tr- like, for instance, like how are you training men to be patriarchs in the home? What does that actually look like at a, at a very practical level? Men will ne- never be responsible for the things that they don't know they're responsible for. Um, mm. they, they don't understand uh, headship or representation or most men don't understand even shepherding. Uh, there, there are some basic characteristics of men that have been absent. You know, we often, we even think that, you know, the, the, the qualifications for elders are just for elders. I go, no, this is, this is qualifications for all men. Uh, this is something we should all be striving for. Uh, this isn't like what, you know, I get to go on the, on the lesser, you know, uh, the lesser list of qualifications for being a godly man. No, we, we all need to go there. I think though, we know that the qualification for the pastorate is the home. And so it is, it's not only the home. Uh, there are other character qualifications that we see in First Timothy 3 and Titus 1, but we know that uh, the home is a mark of credibility. And uh, if you prove yourself in the home, you can qualify yourself in the church. And so this becomes a focus for us at Reformation Seminary. The first module that we do at our school is family discipleship. And mm. so we start there. We don't start with hermeneutics. We don't start with exegesis. We don't start with homiletics. We start with family discipleship because if you, if you get this wrong and this, and, and ov- what we try to do when people come in is that we try to get this right quickly because it sometimes takes a year to get right. Uh, Cause you become aware of it. We, we, we go through, you know, um, a couple of stuff from a couple of books from Doug Wilson. We go through, you know, uh, family shepherds by Vody Bauckham, the neglected qualification by Doug and, and there's a handful of other little resources that we get through and we want to bring them to a place of, of recognizing that, that the view of yourself as the shepherd of your home is absolutely essential. Modeling Christ, you know, what, what does that look like to model, to model Christ to your bride? I think about Christ displayed his headship by dying for his wife. Um, there, there's some unique and deep truths that are there. How does that play out in a home? Um, there, there's, there's some great and deep theological discussion to be had there. Uh, but patriarchal, a patriarchal view versus a complementarian view um, is essential to develop in men today uh, so that we have this extreme ownership. You know, you've, you probably heard the book, Extreme Ownership, when we understand yeah. um, uh, what we're responsible for before the Lord. It, it really does change the way that we live. I mean, you think about Adam. Why is, why is Adam the one uh, that gets the heat in Romans 5? We're all born in Adam. Eve's the one that, that inaugurated the sin, yet Adam is the representation for all mankind. Um, they're, they're just that understanding of federalism is essential for men to grasp um, so that they can uh, represent their families well. Yeah, exactly. No, that's a great point. Um, one of the things, Dale, I, I know you're you know, you, you're connected with Doug Wilson, um, you friends close with Costi Hins down there. Um, a lot of people across the country. So you see a lot of different swaths of what's going on in Christianity. I think my question is, do you see sort of a shift happening toward maybe more of a favorable attitude toward things like patriarchy and masculinity, as you've described it in the book? I, I seem to think there is some shift, but I wonder if you're seeing that. And uh, if so, why? Yeah, this is a great question. I, I think everybody on Twitter is going to agree. Um, 
Yeah. You know, you, yes. you, you get the you get the dispensationals that are like seeing people go post millennial, and they're like, "This is a trend. This is a trend." <laughs> That's um, right. And so, yeah, I think there is a, a shift. I think that uh, the Lord, in His sovereign will, is awakening uh, more of His church to theological perspectives that are victorious and helpful, especially mm. for the time that we're living in. And I think that's true historically that the Lord does these things. Uh, I also think that there is becoming an increasing uh, theological clarity as more communication happens. You know, people often ask me, why did it take so long for Augustine to arrive at his doctrines of grace? I'm like, do you know how many people had a full copy of the scriptures at that time? I mean, let alone any theological discourse. Augustine's not like walking down the street, like, hey, can we get eight guys in the room to talk about this? No. And so we are getting greater and greater theological clarity. Obviously, we need to stay within historic confessional orthodoxy. Uh, There's a balance there. Um, But I do believe that there is a trend towards uh, post-millennialism because I think we are tired of the pessimistic eschatology that we've been bathed in for the last century and a half. I think that there is a desire to uh, towards even just reformed um, reformed soteriology. I think we're seeing a huge shift, which we've been seeing since the young restless and reform movement. But I think that's continuing to go on because again, more theological clarity, more people communicating, more people are seeing the fallacy of Arminianism in terms of uh, a sovereign God over, over the salvation of souls. So I think we're seeing more and more people shift there. I think chosen by God, uh, by R.C. Sproul is, be, you know, it, it's a wildly popular book. I think more and more people are reading that. I think more and more people are are talking about the doctrines of grace. I think obviously MacArthur became a lion in the last years because of COVID. Doug became a lion, you know, and, and then obviously you had the gateway drug of John Piper and all the people that were uh, a part of that movement before. But yeah. I think there's more and more people that are still shifting there, which again, I think is the open door. And And from there, I think you're shifting into confessionalism where you're seeing a lot of people go to 1689 uh, or uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, jumping out of the dispensational camp, jumping out of the two, the two peoples of God camp. And, and that's moving them even further down where they're going to hit into their eschatology, which you're moving into post-millennialism, which can move into theonomic uh, thinking, uh, which can you know also uh, parody into um, to biblical patriarchy. So there's a shift for sure. And I think we're seeing that the Christianity that we've had for the last hundred years is is not producing much fruit. It's it's weak and it's impotent. It is produced a generation of of silent men who have allowed us to to essentially be where we are today. We were essentially we, we've been, we've created what we have today. And I think everybody's realizing that this is, this is not good. I don't want this for my children and how we view God is, is essential to how the future will be in the church. And so I do think there's a, there's, there's a, a spiritual awakening, a revival, if you will, of, of that biblical masculine Christianity that's coming alive. And uh, I think people are looking for more and more resources. And I think people are even adopting things like post-millennialism without really even understanding it, which is a problem. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they just want to be hopeful. They're just tired of pessimism and, or the doctrines of grace without really being able to defend it or uh, theonomy uh, without understanding the implications. Uh, there, there's just a lot there. However, there's something happening and everybody can feel it. And the Lord is raising up a handful of men 
I, I would say Eric, you and the guys at Kings Hall and, uh, you know, um, uh, Jeff Durbin and, and Doug and the guys up in Moscow and uh, our, our ministry and Joel Webin down, down in, in Austin. And, um, and, you know, and even, even some of the guys that are outside of that world, but are still producing a more masculine Christianity for even guys like uh, Kosti Hinn and, and, and Anthony Wood down in Orange County and, and some guys mm. that came out of the master seminary. I think that there's even there, uh, if you're going to follow a pessimistic eschatology, following a guy like MacArthur is still a masculine approach versus maybe following a guy from TGC or Tim Keller or even a Piper who's, you know, I would say more emotional. Um, and so th- there is a shift and I think we're feeling it and I think it's good. And I think the next generation of Christians is going to be stronger and bolder than we have today. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And one of the things I've noticed, Dale, is when you when you get into things like patriarchy, post-millennialism, Calvinism, doctrines of grace, uh, they seem to be inherently masculine. And I always kind of felt that, but I was reading a book by Ann Douglas, uh, The Feminization of American Culture. Hmm. And she makes the observation that when Calvinism died out in the mid-1800s and Unitarianism took over, she said the death of Calvinism in America was the death of patriarchy. Hmm. And I was like, whoa, what? That's crazy. But, but I think that is part of the reason you're seeing here. Uh, men are hardwired for mission and outward facing to the world. They want to go build things. They want to fight fights. They, they want to win glory for the kingdom of God if they're Christian men. And so I think post-mill is, is pretty attractive to them. I know you've made a big change there in, in going in the post-mill direction. Um, we've talked about it uh, on and off, but I'm curious, kind of what were the main issues for you and, and why did you end up in that trajectory? Yeah, I think it's post-millennialism requires... So I, I went through seminary and spent a year thinking about eschatology and seminary and then another year after that. And I had access to really incredible minds, including Doug Wilson, who would get on phone calls with me privately to talk about eschatology for an hour and a half. And... Mm. And, and I wasn't convinced for a long time. And I realized that post-millennialism, to, you know, one, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor, so I need to not just adopt positions of other people because I like those people. <laughs> you, you need to adopt a position that you actually truly feel convicted and believe and see in the scriptures. Right. And, and post-millennialism is robust. Uh, it, it requires a deep, systematic theological perspective of the Old Testament and the New Testament in order to really understand and grasp, um, and grasp that, that form of eschatology. And I think that's the reason why most people uh, have, have not adopted it at this point, because it, is, it is, requires a, an immense amount of theological comprehension and maturity. Uh, it's the same thing with the doctrines of grace. We have a very shallow Christianity today. Uh, you know, I think of Jesus when he says, what's the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. We have forgotten that latter part of loving the Lord with our mind. We have no intellectual ascent. We have a very unacademic Christianity. Uh, we're, we're exiting that right now, but you have guys like, you know, um, the, the megachurch pastors that haven't, you know, they're not using their brain at all. They're not using grammar. They're not using hermeneutics. They're not understanding their original languages. They're not seeing systematics, none of that. And so, uh, even with Calvinism, we're seeing it requires more than, you know, I read my Bible for five minutes in the morning to start to understand the doctrines of grace. 
I mean, it, yeah. it, it is something, I mean, Calvin is uncovering these things and we know how deep Calvin is. He's a dense writer. And so, so there, there's something that's going on there. It requires some, some deep systematics for post-millennialism. It's the same thing. Now for me, I was just tired of seeing a defeated Christianity. Um, and I realized that why, if we have a victorious Christ, why do we have a defeated church? It, it was just, incon mm. it was incongruent with me. And yeah. when you start to have theological conclusions, you realize that um, if, if um, all authority has been given to Christ in heaven and on earth, then Christ has the authority. And if the gates of hell will not prevail against the church and Christ is building the church and he tells us to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And if the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that is going to grow, uh, start small and grow to become the biggest, essentially kingdom of the kingdoms or plants of the plants, um, or that the kingdom of God is like leaven that leavens the whole lump. Um, if we start putting the consistency, the logical, reasonable consistency uh, with all these passages together, uh, why, why would we, my big question is this, the, the church has continued to grow because Christ is continuing to, to convert sinners into saints. Why would he stop? Like, why should we expect that to slow down? Why it has never slowed down. We have no historical data to show that the church is going to get smaller or that we're going to have less returns on our evangelistic efforts. Right. Yet the, the, the undertones of Christianity in America is that it's just going to get worse and less and less people are going to come to Christ and it's just going to get darker and it's going to get harder and the church is going to get smaller and we're going to go into hiding and then the world's going to have microchips put in their forehead and everything's going to be, you know, that that's the, <laughs> that's the, yeah. the, the way that we view these things, even if we don't say it and, and um, everything becomes an affirmation of that pessimism so that you have this, uh, you know, some, your neighbor's Amazon prime package gets stolen. Ah, you know what? Things get worse when the end comes near, you know? You <laughs> That's know? right. And so come Lord Jesus, come Lord Jesus, clean up, mop up this mess, you know? And, and so there's, there's every possible piece of sin and bad news in the world becomes an affirmation of their pessimism. And so it's very easy to get in this cycle. And so again, when you, when you match up what the scriptures say and that we have a victorious King and that if Christ is the head of the church and that he is the one that is, is saving and justifying and, and calling and glorifying, if he's the one doing all the work, building the church, why is he going to stop? He's never stopped. He's never slowed. We've, we're now at 31% of the world's population professes Christ. We know that there's a visible and invisible church. We know that that's an inflated number. But the reality is that the church is continuing to grow. And while we are falling apart or, or collapsing here in the West, we are absolutely seeing a mass conversion of individuals in India and in the Middle East and Cuba and, and other parts in China. So, so we know that God actually uses persecution and trials through generations to actually be the nurturing ground for future revival. We, we know, I don't know who originally said it, but it's, it's the, the blood of the martyrs becomes the, what is it? The fertilizer of the church. And, yeah. and, and so we know that there's an up and down trend like a stock market that we're seeing. So we become so myopic and we could be so pessimistic. We go, oh, it's so bad. It's falling apart. But the reality is, is that it's been worse um, and it's actually getting better and better and better. Yes, it's still rough and it's going to be rough till the end because we still have sin and we still die and we still have disease and, and things are happening. But Christ is not going to stop converting people with the gospel. 
it's never mm. been true and it's not going to be true in the in the future and so um that is the the congruency that you see with post-millennialism or you know and, and just in optimism in general for the church um and um and so I, I just encourage people i think most people go from the journey from dispensational to historic pre-mill maybe get into covenant theology and then they go to amillennialism they go to optimistic amillennial and then they're like okay I'm actually going to put my money where my mouth is, and I, I'm actually going to believe what the what what the scriptures say are actually going to happen that Christ right. will rule until all of his enemies are under his feet. And so, um, yes, I, I say take some time in post millennialism. It's going to it took me a lot of hours of research to get there, but man, we are seeing more people get there, and it does change. I would say post millennialism has been as influential and shocking to me as the doctrines of grace were many years ago. Interesting. Uh, any particular books or resources that you found like, Hey, this is a cornerstone that you got to read, check out, listen to. Yeah. So the problem with all these books and eschatology is that you have to spend the first 400 pages explaining <laughs> yeah. every one of the views before you can talk about the view you want to talk about. Yeah. And so yeah. it's kind of a, a, a dilemma. Now, there's a short book called God's Plan for Victory by R.J. Rushdoony. It's an hour and 45 minute audio book. You can listen to it on the Canon Plus app. You can also get it on Audible. That's a great little primer of just, okay, I'm going to just do a quick study on post-millennialism. Uh, that's mm -hmm. very helpful. Um, I think that Chilton's uh, book, uh, Paradise, uh, Paradise Restored, right? Um, yep. That, yep. that book was was fantastic. It was, it was a deeper dive than, um, than God's plan for victory. Keith Matheson wrote a really great book on the topic as well. Um, I, I think it's just called post-millennialism. Um, yep. also, uh, uh, if you want to go back into, uh, earlier in the century, uh, in the, in the 20th century, we have, um, Lorraine Bettner, who is a man, by the way, uh, we we often think, oh, who's who's this woman writing theology books in the early 1900s? No, it's uh, Lorraine Bettner was studied under B.B. Warfield and and the Hodge yep. uh, clan, and he wrote a book called the the um, the Reform or the Reform Doctrine of Predestination that I had to read in seminary. That is so dense and so fantastic. It's like chosen by God's big brother in a defense of the doctrines <laughs> of grace. Yeah, and then you realize that he wrote it at like 31 years old. And you're wow. like, you're like, wow, we don't make, we don't make men like we did back then. Um, no. but he wrote a book called post-millennialism as well. That's robust and deep and, and difficult, difficult to fight against because it's so well done. And so, uh, yeah. I, and you have a podcast, Eric, if you don't listen, you know, I know you listened to it because you were part of it, but I'm talking about the people that are listening and watching here. They do an interview, a two part series on pessimism, pessimistic eschatology, and um, optimistic eschatology and that interview with, uh, with, uh, with Chuck Knox. And that was fantastic. And so those two episodes on the Kings Hall mm, podcast yeah. were really good resources for me to send to friends. Oh, um, cool. Awesome. And so I, I'm going to just kind of give you a little, uh, you know, toss a dollar in your hat there. Cause that was a good, yeah, thank you. That was some good work there. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. And um, it, it's interesting because, you know, the mediums have changed. I remember, you know, 10 years ago, uh, pastors were like, you know, it, even though during the young, restless and reformed, everything that was happening was happening on blogs, right? People were 
you remember them. They were like uh, written internet things. And uh, now it seems like podcasting, um, people can do other things. They can be listened to it. Uh, really different ways to communicate, uh, but they become so important. Uh, my question for you is you do a lot of stuff with ReLearn. Uh, we'll, of course, have links for that in the show notes. But a lot of that content has been, that's actually how I found out about you a couple of years ago, I think, because uh, when we first started looking at head coverings, people were like, oh, there's this guy. And uh, the, the kind of the first things that they find out are like, well, it, it's house church. So he's probably crazy. Yeah, it got to be heretic. And uh, his doctrine, yeah, his doctrine is probably bad. And then, uh, so my wife was listening to it. I started listening to it. And I said, no, I think this guy's like reformed and really solid. Um, and then that actually ended up changing what I had thought about head coverings. So as you look at ReLearn and everything you've done there, why do you think that has had so much traction with people? Like just that almost seems like people are just desperate and hungry for just solid biblical teaching on practical theological issues. Yeah, you know, our mission at ReLearn, which is relearn.org, is to strengthen biblical and theological literacy in the church. We have a, a theological illiteracy issue uh, today. And so I would say the vast majority of Christians in the church don't even understand the gospel. Uh, they, they, yeah. they don't understand the mechanics of the gospel. They, they're they're going to give you a, a John 3.16 gospel, but they're not going to give you a 2 Corinthians 5.21 gospel. They're not understanding penal substitutionary atonement. They're not understanding that Christ's righteousness is imputed to you by faith and your sinfulness is imputed to him by, by, you know, by God's mercy and sovereignty. This is, this is something that we need to, to grasp, obviously, at the gospel mechanics. Um, so we produce as much content as we possibly can, videos and resources. The, the Lord has made me a teacher. I would say even more than a pastor. I, I'm a pastor teacher by, by gifting. And it's one of those things that I don't declare myself. Other people have told me that, of, that they've recognized that in me, which I think is an important little side note is that you don't ever want to come out and tell people what you are in the sense that you want people to recognize that in you and go, I think you, you, you would be a great elder because of X, or you would be a great deacon because of X. We see that in you. We see yeah. that in you. And that, that was true of me over the last decade as people started seeing this uh, desire and gifting to teach. And so our ministry here is to essentially produce those types of short videos and short resources in our podcast, Real Christianity. Uh, Brian uh, Sauve actually just texted me a couple of days ago and said, hey, just wanted to let you know your short video on Instagram about post-millennialism has been shared and told by several of our friends that it was really helpful for them. And, oh, uh, yeah. and you know, I, I love that because for me, we make these 90 second videos. That seems to be the time span of most people's uh, day to watch a 90 second video. Yeah. And so that's my heart is producing these, these uh, short resources that are bringing deep, complex truths to make them simple. I, I, the, the definition of brilliance is to make something complex seem simple. Um, that, mm. is, that is what brilliant people do. I'm not saying that I'm brilliant, but I'm trying to be, to live within that definition. Try to make these complex things accessible, simple, um, palatable, uh, able to grasp. It's what we do with children. <laughs> Try to go explain penal substitutionary atonement to a child. Um, you know, R.C. Sproul uh, is, a, is one of the best at this. 
that's why we love him because we we can read these complex doctrines and we get them and we we go man that that book by Sproul helped me grasp this he he shares Correct. he shares a story about telling his children um about uh atonement and i do this with my children today uh i say i say you know my son's names are honor and valor i say boys if you if you stood in front of christ right now what's going to happen how is he going to see you with if you're if you're not standing with christ and you stand before god what is he going to see you oh we're going to be seen as sinners yeah you you are not righteous you need righteousness right and i go well look at christ over here and i i I grab a blanket and i say you need christ's righteousness wrapped over you and i i walk over and i go i go i'm going to wrap you in christ's righteousness now how do you get the righteousness of christ from that blanket how do you get it to be wrapped around you? And the, you know, they'd answer, but by faith, our faith gives us Christ's righteousness imputed to us. And so I go, all right, now I cover them with this blanket and I, I wrap them up with this blanket. And so now you're standing before God and you're covered in the righteousness of Christ. Is God going to view you as a sinner or is he going to view you as a saint? Oh, he's going to view us as a saint. And I said, why? Well, because we have the righteousness of Christ. And so I'm, I'm doing those kind of things yeah. constantly um, which again, you know, I can't take credit for that's a Sproul thing and Sproul probably got it from some other reformer or whatever, but yeah, it, it, we are desperate for people bringing theological truths and, and I, I'm going to even say something else. Hmm. We are also wanting deeper information. Hmm. Okay. We're, we're tired of Calvary Chapel Christianity. Um, yeah. you know, where we're having just kind of the, the first layer. Um, we, we want to go with theological depth. There are more and more people that are, that are looking into deeper theological education. They're tired of the devotions of the 1990s. And they're looking for the stuff from Banner of Truth now. They're looking for uh, yeah, Puritan works. There's more of an interest in biblical languages. There's more of an interest in reading a systematic theology. I, I can't tell you how many average Christians I'm seeing that are reading Hodge's systematic theology or oh, yeah. know, MacArthur's biblical doctrine or, you know, um, you know, lots of people that even over the last couple of decades have been reading Grudem's stuff. I mean, that is a good step. <laughs> And the right direction is that we are wanting more dense. Uh, we're realizing that the shallow Christianity, the costless Christianity of the past, isn't going to carry us and our kids through the things that we're dealing with today. And so we're, we're wanting more and we're producing higher thinking content. I mean, uh, if, God, if God is a predestining God, you know, why, why should we, uh, what's the point of evangelism if God is predestining everyone? you know, writing robust articles on those things. What, what is the purpose of sin in the world? You know, I, I'm putting these articles out. The, the key differences between um, Arminianism and, and Calvinism. And these are long 5,000 word articles and people are consuming them by the hundreds. And it's, oh, ju- it's just a shocking shift from, from 1990s Christianity that we all grew up in. Yeah, it's, it's such a good point too. And I think... Um I think it was Paul Maxwell. This was before he apostatized, but he said, you know, he had worked at like Moody Publishers or whatever, uh, but he was noticing how men were turning to the intellectual dark web and Jordan Peterson and and Joe Rogan. And he said, one of the things that the church has badly uh, misjudged was that men actually want 
intellectually rigorous material. Yes. They want to be challenged. They, they want the deep theology and they're not into the Hallmark channel, sappy, emotionalistic drivel. Um, they actually want to be challenged on that front. Yeah, you, that's exactly right. There is, there, there's a shift in every direction. And I'm going to actually say one more direction that I think is important is there's a shift towards homeschooling. There's a shift towards, yeah. towards classical education. There is a shift yes. towards um, private academies. Um, I, I shared with you a, a text message, what, a couple weeks ago yeah. of the growing rapid number of families that are pulling kids out of the public school system and bringing them into homeschooling, whether they're in classical conversations in a classical education model, or they're in a, um, in a, uh, what's the high reading category, uh, curriculum. Oh yeah. I can't think of it. If our wives were here, they would, they would tell us what they're I called. I know they'd be ashamed of uh, me right yeah, now. They would. <laughs> um, the, uh, there, there is a shift in a greater, deeper, richer, denser education for our children as well. Mm. I think that we're seeing the transgenderism, the homosexuality, and the perversion and the distortion and the coming pedophilia and the, uh, the, the, the logic war. And they're realizing, one, that all education is discipleship and the discipleship of the, of the educational system and the public school system under the government of the secular nation is wicked and wrong and dangerous. Finally, they're realizing that. Um, but they're also realizing that the education that we had as children will not be sufficient for the, edu- for the life that our children will lead in the future. So they need more than what we had. And so we're actually mm. a generation that's pioneering and we're giving our kids things that we've never actually experienced. My kids are way smarter than me and they're going to be way smarter than me. Um, yeah, they're, yeah, they're learning their Latin songs and they're learning their, their, um, their timeline history songs. And they're reading the classics that I've never read. And, and, right. and so this is good. Um, this is a good shift in the church. And so there is a trend towards intellectualism. Now that can always, there's a good and bad side of everything. Um, but I, I think we're actually, we're building a more robust and defensible and uh, anchored Christianity that I believe will will see much fruit in the generations to come. Yeah, it's a, it's a good observation. Uh, one of the last things I want to do as we close is just ask you, uh, you look out, you see the culture war happening. Um, we, we've got some people, I was looking at a tweet the other day. I think it was Tom Hicks, but he said, you know, uh, it's sort of anti-culture war. He said, you know, Jesus never said disciple the nations. You've got that side. You've got people uh, like Russ Moore who are writing, you know, against Christian nationalism. And hey, hey, by the way, you know, Hitler was a Christian nationalist. You should know that. And Putin and all the other fascists we hate and Mussolini. Um, there's just a lot going on on that front. Uh, from all sides, secular, Christian, et cetera. But my question is kind of what do you see the next phase or some of the next strategic things that Christians should be thinking about? How do I engage here? Obviously, we talked about education, homeschooling. I think that's a huge part of it. Uh, but but kind of what's next and what do you, what do you, I know we're not, you know, trying to tell the future or anything like that, but we can apply wise principles here. And, and if we're to do that, kind of w- w- what do you see coming down the pipeline? Yeah, I think it starts with men. Mm. And it starts with self. It starts with a greater 
theological comprehension because you can't take your family to a place that you've never been. Mm. You, you can't take them to a show you've never seen. And, yeah. and so there is first and foremost a requirement of men to grasp the gospel clearly and fully. So I, I would say that's mm. step one. So for you men that are listening that are Christian, that you know understand the gospel at a basic level, I think there are, uh, uh, I, you know, again, the gospel can fill, you know, a napkin and it can also fill a 25,000 page book. And so there's degrees of the gospel and the mechanics uh, within. So I would recommend first, you know, maybe picking up Lewis Burkhoff's systematic theology and instead of using it as a doorstop in your office, because it's <laughs> that thick, um, you know, pick it up and read the whole thing over the next year. Um, get yourself a grasp on systematic theology that is, again, robust and clear. And I believe that's, that's step one. Um, step two, uh, I believe, would, would be um, to becoming an actually a shepherd in your home. Uh, mm. I think, again, we, we, we don't recognize the role of parenting and how vital it is. I, I, every time I listen to a parenting book, I realize... I got to invest more here. Um, yeah. I, I'm never listening to a parenting book going, nah, you know, I got it already. I got it already. <laughs> I don't need to do that. Um, no. So I, I would say parenting is not inconvenient. It is absolutely essential discipleship purpose for you as a father. And this means the catechization of your family. Um, so I say this and it's unpopular, but I actually tell my wife what to read. Now, she has her freedom to do that as well, but I actually shepherd my wife in the sense that I actually train her and teach her about the gospel. So, so it's, unfortunately, many men are in marriages where their wife is actually shepherding them. Their mm -hmm. wife knows more about the gospel than they do because they aren't taking the time to understand God. And so, so first again, catechizing yourself, theological development in your own comprehension and your own devotion with the Lord. And then the catechization of your family, including your wife, um, teaching your wife in this, this starts to spin the marriage in the right direction where your wife starts to build up a, history, knowing that you have the theological answers that she's looking for, and she turns to you for that guidance. Uh, obviously, she has a relationship with the Lord in her own right, um, and she can read the scriptures on her own. But when she has questions, she doesn't turn to Google first. She doesn't turn to right. um, some other man that has the answers. Right. She turns to you because she, you have built up a historical narrative that you have the answers. And if you don't have them, you'll find them and that you care about her having the right answer and that you care about her and you being unified together on those answers so that you can train up your children in those, those truths. And then, uh, you know, what I do is I actually intentionally catechize my kids and, you know, teaching them basic truths, basic stuff. I mean, you can start with something simple. Like at the, at bedtime, I ask my kids, What's the most important thing we can ever do? And they'll all yell out, follow God's word. And I go, where do you find God's word? In the Bible. You know, simple. 
Simple, simple little questions. Now you can go as far as doing the, you know, what do the scriptures principally teach and get into the Westminster Catechism, right? Um, so there's, there's varying degrees, but I would say start being intentional of a family worship time in the morning or in the evening, but really start diving in. Because I'm not trying to, to make change. I don't think we should be going like, oh, let's make change and it's going to be immediate and we're going to start to see it right now. No, we are thinking multi-generationally. I want to see that if every Christian family and husband and father discipled their children, educated their children in the faith, put them in strong systems of education, monitored the media that they were watching, uh, trained up their, their wives and their children in the gospel in theological density. If every Christian family did this, it would radically shift what's gonna, what we're going to see in 25 years. But, hmm. but that, that's the goal is, is 25 years from now, not right now. And so there's a lot of sowing before there's the reaping. And uh, that's what I, I would say. That's the war. That's where it's at. Um, there's lots of things to go out and do. There's lots of things to, to, to focus on there. Um, man, I, I, I want to answer this question in another way. Can I, if I have time? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. The other thing is this. Um, Christians need to learn how to make money. You just need to learn how to make money. Like, I, I don't know what it is in the church where we have a bunch of guys that don't know how to make money, but it's not a thing. Okay. Get rid of it. It's okay. like the, the poverty gospel. Yes. Okay. Figure out how to make money. This is, this is something before I was in ministry, I was in business and um, I wrote a couple of books, uh, people over profit, launch your dream, save from success in the business industry. Um, and, and was running a, a, a $10 million e-commerce company, uh, another multi-million dollar company over uh, after that. Uh, and we sold those companies and went into ministry full time. Uh, we own, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of, of um, real estate that gives us some passive income. We don't have tons of money flowing out of our ears, but we have a plan, an inheritance for our children. We have, uh, we're not living paycheck to paycheck. We're not in debt. Um, we are uh, building, you know, we, we paid off our home uh, when we were in Oregon uh, before we moved down here to Arizona when we were, when I was 32 years old. And so we had, played our cards right financially. We followed the Dave Ramsey stuff early in our, our marriage. Uh, we made those right decisions. But, and I'm saying this because there is a lack of discipleship in this area in the church. Um, I've even seen these incredibly godly men that just don't know how to manage their money. Um, and in the sense that they, they love the Lord, they know the gospel, they can teach from the pulpit, they have all these things, but they, they, their, their finances are a mess. And so, I just want to say men need to learn how to, to make money and to manage money. Um, and I'm not talking about becoming rich or becoming a millionaire or whatever it may be. I'm just talking about figuring out a way to make some good passive income, a multi, uh, multiple income stream structure where you're having you know, maybe a little side thing that you're doing on Etsy and maybe you're doing some freelance work over here and, and maybe you're, uh, you know, you got a weekend thing this, this way or you got... Uh, you know, you, you bought a, a small RV that you rent out on, um, what's that, uh, RV rental site, or you put your car yeah, on, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You put your car on, you know, um, Turo or what, whatever it may be, just creating multiple income streams and learning how to manage that money effectively. And I say that because the kingdom, the Lord uses the wealth of the saints to build the kingdom. He also uses the wealth of the, of the wicked to do so as well. But 
but I'm saying is that the wealth of the of of the saints is used to build the kingdom. It's to support ministries. It's to support uh, movements. It's to support other companies and ideas and individuals and to give and to, I mean, it's just important. And the reason we don't have any great Christian media and why my kids have to be stuck watching content from secular organizations is because the Christians don't make yeah. it because there's not any money going there. And if there is money going there, uh, we don't have enough artists and creators that are, that are thinking that way. So there's, there's a lot of things in this culture war, but I think it does start with theological development with the man, catechizing the family and the children, are the, the, uh, your wives and your children and figuring out how to way to make money and manage money. Well, I think those things really do shift the next generation. Leave your kids, man, how great would it have been to start off your marriage with a $25,000 gift for a down payment for your house, man, what a, what a blessing oh, that would have been. You, yeah. you should be working for that, for your children, not because they're going to be just, you know, mooching off of mom and dad, but because you're going to raise up godly children that know how to manage that money well, and you're going to give it to them as a gift and a blessing to them to set them up so they don't have to go into debt. I mean, this is think this way. And so, um, a thousand more things to say, can't say it, but that is where, where I would say that the war should be fought right now. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, Dale on the business front and making money, any resources, books you like, I know you mentioned Dave Ramsey, uh, anything else you would say, Hey, Cornerstone, go read this, listen yeah. to it. Yeah. Um, there's a couple good books that I've read over the years. I mean, if you think about business side, uh, so I'll say one book, essentialism is really good for just time management and prioritization, figuring out yeah. what is essential. How do you do essentially more with, with, or do, do less, but do it better. <laughs> uh, and so that, that's one book that I would say is just kind of a, uh, an overtone of how you should be thinking about how do I get more time so that I could even do more? Uh, Cause I'm already so busy. I got a full-time job and I got all these kids with me and I got to go to church and I got to, I can't find time to make money. <laughs> um, and how to focus on your best work. I think it's really good for that too. Yep. Um, another book uh, called deep work, uh, mm -hmm. I think is important for how to really start getting yourself into a rhythm where you can actually think and produce and create. You can't do that with sporadic busyness and you got 10 minutes here and mm. 20 minutes there and, and, and building a, a structure for your, your life. There's another book by Doug Wilson called Plotactivity, which I appreciate mm. his way of producing. I mean, Doug's written like a bajillion books. I think he's literally written like 140 books or something. <laughs> and you go, how do you do that? Um, his thing is plotting. Um, mm. And so he talks about plotactivity. Uh, good business books. Anything by Jim Collins is a really great business book. If you own a business and you want to think, uh, think well about how to run a great company, uh, good to great, great by choice, um, how the mighty built fall, to built to last. All, all those, the, all of his books have been influential for me in the way that I built uh, companies. I wrote a book called Launch Your Dream, which is a step-by-step -step on how to start a company. And you can buy that on Amazon. Um, and, mm. and that's an easy one uh, to kind of uh, more, more practically thinking. And so those have been, there's another book that's, that's if you're a Christian, you, you gotta be careful on how you read it, but it's called Profit First. Um, and so it, there's some pretty bad ideas in there, but there's also some really good ideas in there. Um, yeah. And so, uh, but yeah, gr great resources there for, for men to get up and, um, and get out and make some money. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it, Dale. Uh, definitely will encourage people to check those resources out. Uh, we'll have links in the show notes to your materials as well. And again, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, episode of the podcast. Hey man, thanks Eric for having me. 
And until next time, men, stay frosty. Fight a good fight. Act like men. <laughs>